Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Friday, June 30th, 2023. It's about 1.30 in the afternoon here on the East Coast of the United States. Our guest today uh, in his maiden appearance, and I don't think it will be his last by a long stretch, is Matthew Ho. Matthew is a disabled American veteran from the Iraq War, having served honorably in the United States Marine Corps, rising to the rank of captain. That, of course, means he's still in the Marine Corps, just as important as his service to the country in the military. uh, He also served in the State Department under both President George W. Bush and President uh, Barack Obama. Even more important, he has devoted his entire adult life to the study of the origins and the benefits of war. Matthew, it is a pleasure. Welcome, my new friend, to Judging Freedom. Thanks, Judge. So you have uh, a great piece out, which I just read, uh, called A War Long Wanted, and you're talking about the Ukraine war. Who or what wanted the war in Ukraine before it started? Oh, I, I think this is a, a war. And thank you so much for having me here. And, and thank you for all the work you're doing. And I appreciate everyone watching today. Um, this is a war that goes back decades. And of course, the shooting war begins in 2014. But the desire for this war predates that. And you know, in my analysis, and I think a lot of people would agree, this is a very dirty war. This is a war about megalomania, and this is a war about fossil fuels and greater issues of commerce. Who gets to provide liquid natural gas to Western Europe? And so this is a war that has been wanted by uh, people in Washington, D.C., people in London, people in Brussels, people in Kiev, and people in Moscow for decades now, for a generation. And uh, of course, the result, uh, they finally got that war. And what we're seeing now, of course, is this terrible stalemated conflict where military victory is not possible for either side. But as a good friend of mine says, even losing wars make money. So as long as the war continues, the benefits to those who have wanted this war continue as well. Who in Kiev or what in Kiev or when in Kiev uh, did anyone want this war? Surely you don't mean President Zelensky, or do you mean President Zelensky? You know, I, I think people might be surprised when I say this, but I have a bit of sympathy for President Zelensky in the sense that he ran as a peace candidate 
in 2019. And he ran he ran a campaign where he said, I will go and I will bring about peace in eastern Ukraine. As soon as he came into office, he, of course, was overwhelmed. I don't know where his current views are on that. I think he ditched those and left those behind. And I think that came a lot from the pressure he came under from both the oligarchs. Uh, Ukraine is a terribly corrupt country, just as Moscow, just as Russia is a terribly corrupt country, just as the United States is a country run by oligarchs, right? But he comes under the pressure of the oligarchs and he comes under the pressure of the ultranationalists, uh, those who have been uh, uh, in this desire for a final war, final conflict with those to the east of Ukraine, to have a final showdown between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, these are uh, people that you would describe as far right wing, as hardliners. And you hear a lot about the Nazi uh, element within that, uh, 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 within that. And that's true. There are Nazis within Ukraine, within the Ukrainian military, within the Ukrainian government that have an outsized uh, uh, power to them, uh, much greater than their numbers, but certainly uh, their ideology, their desire for this ethno-nationalist type conflict certainly was something that put a lot of pressure and perverted uh, what Zelensky said he wanted to do when he went into office in 2019. And then of course, those in power there in Kyiv, they also see the benefits of aligning with uh, the militarist foreign policies of NATO and the U.S., so they found themselves being underwritten, having a real steady, uh, 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 well-financed foundation to their efforts coming from Washington, D.C., from London, from Brussels. Matthew, give us a brief history lesson of uh, NATO pushing for this war. Take us from briefly from the fall of the Soviet Union and the promises that NATO and uh, George H.W. Bush and Jim Booker, uh, uh, Baker made to Mikhail Gorbachev and how uh, Russia was betrayed uh, by the West. Right. And the first thing I'll say is I, I'd encourage people to go to the National Security Archives at George Washington University. They have a tremendous collection of the documentation on this question, because over particularly the last 18 months or so, we've seen in this country this denial that there was ever any um, agreements made between the United States, NATO, and Russia about eastward uh, NATO expansion. Uh, there were no formal declarations, no treaties signed, but there certainly were a number of assurances given by the West, by NATO and the U.S., that NATO would not expand eastward up onto Russia's borders. And of course, Russia has a long history of concern for that. They have been invaded uh, many, many times. Uh, go back to Charles XII, uh, Napoleon, the Earl of Aberdeen, uh, the Kaiser, Hitler, right? So, that, so Russia's paranoia, if you will, is well understood and well justified if you understand Russian history. And what happens in the 90s is there is, uh, a, as I said, assurances given by the West to uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin that the NATO would not expand eastward, would not threaten the Russians. It was clear the Russians made uh, this point continually over and over and over again that uh, NATO expansion eastward would be seen by them as a threat. It would be a danger to them. It would be a red line to them. And the United States uh, and NATO in its arrogance and its hubris dismissed all that. 
multiple reasons for it. Some it's got to do with the arms industry. Uh, the U.S. arms industry after the Cold War, of course, is threatened with uh, 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 Cold War was not good for the end of the Cold War was not good for their business. Right. Let me let me uh, is it isn't it true that uh, Jim Baker or George H.W. or someone on their behalf used words to the effect of to Mikhail uh, Gorbachev? NATO will not move one inch eastward. And now, of course, it's about 800 miles east of where it was when that promise was made. Right. And those were the exact words he used. And again, you can go to the George Washington University archives and see the actual State Department memorandums from those conversations where James Baker, George H.W. Bush's secretary of state, says NATO will not expand one inch eastward, as well as a whole other collection of documentation from not just Americans, but from Germans, from French, from British, you know, making these types of assurances to the Russians. Take us to the Minsk Accords. Who signed them and what did they agree? So the Minsk Accords uh, come out of uh, the Normandy uh, talks, which begin in 2014 after the civil war in eastern Ukraine begins. And what the Minsk Accords do uh, is the Minsk Accords bring about a, a, a diplomatic settlement uh, over a period of years to what was occurring in eastern Ukraine. And it, it, essentially what it says is that the, the eastern Ukraine will be demilitarized, uh, that neither Ukraine or Russia would militarily be involved there, and that you, eastern Ukraine would, to paraphrase it, be accorded a special status. So particularly the contested Donbass area would be a court of special status that would eventually uh, receive a, 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 a type of, of, of autonomy, as well as the promise of referendums in the future to determine how and who was going to govern eastern Ukraine or the Donbass. And those agreements were signed by the Russians, by the Ukrainians, by the Germans, by the French. Uh, the United States backed it as well, though very grudgingly, because many in Washington wanted to have a victory, not a settlement. And we see that now, of course, too, with the terrible results on the Ukrainian people. Right. We, this whole idea that we have to destroy Ukraine to save it. It's absolutely atrocious. Who violated the Minsk Accords? So what occurs is I, I, I often come down to a pox on both houses and whether or not you provide uh, whether whether or not there's a, a, a more of an abundance on one side of that pox. Uh, but for me, with the Minsk Accords, the violations, ru the Russians were involved militarily in eastern Ukraine, uh, argue about to what degree they were. But to me, I, I feel the chief violation was the fact that the promise of the federalized region for eastern Ukraine, the federalized autonomy, if you will, for the Donbass region, as well as the, the, the opportunities for referendums were never provided by the Ukrainian government. And particularly to once uh, uh, after Minsk Accords come in play in 2015, by 2017, 2018, the United States is sending weapons to Ukraine. Uh, I imagine the United the Americans, the British were leaning into Ukrainian ears saying, you don't have to follow this. We are supporting you. We have your back. Victory is what we, you want. Victory is what we want. You can ignore these. And I think that's what occurs. Or just, this is an un unraveling. Is there, is, there, is there any serious dispute amongst uh, historians, academicians, or even American military leaders? I'm keeping politicians out of this uh, question. 
but that the uh, the West, particularly the CIA or intelligence uh, aspects of the State Department, fomented the revolution in Ukraine or the civil war, whatever you want to call it, uh, in 2014. Well, so you have the, the coup that occurs in late 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 2013 through early 14 that chases the legally elected, although corrupt, uh, president of Ukraine to Russia. Uh, the Russians clearly saw this as a coup. There is an abundance of evidence, including leaked telephone intercepts between uh, the head of European affairs for the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Ukraine, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine uh, detailing the coup. There is the evidence of billions of dollars being provided to Ukraine by the United States uh, through organizations that have been involved in coups around the world. There is the long, long, long a uh, well-known history of American coups uh, since, uh, you know, since basically forever, but especially since uh, the end of the Second World War. So we'll have to wait, I think, until maybe the American archives are opened uh, or maybe until something gets spilled from Ukraine to have any type of certainty about it in terms of documentation, like as we do now with the coup in 1953 in Iran, say. I mean, for years... Right. Uh, the Americans denied it and denied it and denied it, even though it was very clear what happened in 1953 in Iran. And then finally, this century, uh, the Americans began to say, yes, it happened. Barack Obama as president acknowledged it. And then finally, there was documentation that showed, yes, there was. So I think in time, there will be that documentation. But I think if you look at what happened, knowing what the U.S. has done before, what the U.S. routinely does you know, it, it doesn't take much to say one and one equals two here. Paint uh, the picture of the current war. We're not going to talk about uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin and the episode of last weekend, but big picture. Paint a picture of the current war from the Russian perspective. I think for the Russians at this point, uh, and, I, and as I said earlier, I, I don't believe military victory is possible for either side. I believe it's a stalemated war. I think the Russians do have the upper hand now. I believe that their goals have always been limited. Their, their, the, the, the widespread assertion in the West that the, the Russians uh, launched this war to take over all of Ukraine uh, is, is simply not true. I believe they launched the feint early in the war to try and get Ukraine a feint to, to at, at Kiev, threaten, threaten the capital in order to get Ukraine to the, the bargaining table and negotiations, which, of course, as we know, were occurring in February and March of last year before the U.S. and the British yanked the Ukrainians out of those peace negotiations. Um, so I think their goals were always limited to take territory in eastern Ukraine to include a buffer zone for their protection as they see a security zone, as well as establish a, a corridor between Crimea and Russia proper. Uh, I think the war, as I said, though, is stalemated. Uh, the Russia may have the upper hand in, in some ways in the sense that they have a much larger force than Ukraine. They have a much larger population. So their ability to mobilize, their ability if they want to go into conscription is certainly great. Their industrial capacity is much greater than anyone in the West estimated, understood, and it's still being dismissed now to uh, uh, really quite a huge degree of error just in their ability to produce what they need for how, the war. And I think this is a war that the Russians prepared for, unlike the West. How unwise 
I'll even use the street word stupid. How immoral was it for the U.S. to yank Ukrainian um, uh, diplomats out of negotiations with Russia because Victoria Nuland and her buddies wanted a hot, bloody war instead? I, I think it's in line with the American foreign policy community, the megalomania of the United States. It's in line with what happens in uh, Vietnam, where the negotiations that we began in 68 resulted in 73 in the very same things you could have had in 68. It's the same things I saw in Iraq, where for years we fought a Sunni insurgency that we said we could never talk to. And then as soon as we talk, start talking to them at the end of 06, 07, they stopped fighting us. It's the same thing I saw in Afghanistan. One of the reasons why I resigned from my position in Afghanistan in 2009 over the escalation of that war is because the Taliban wanted to negotiate at that point. And the United States lied about it. So I think what you're what we saw last year and now, because even now the American side will say the Russians don't want to negotiate. And that may be true now because the Russians may believe they have an upper hand. But up until and through the fall, the Russians wanted to negotiate. And I'll remind people that no one less than General Mark Milley, the chair of the, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the U.S., in the fall was saying this is when we should negotiate. We will not have a better time to negotiate than now. That was dismissed. And I think just what, like what happened in Afghanistan, where we, the Taliban offered to negotiate, they offered to negotiate for years. We said, no, we are going to send in more troops. We will win militarily. And then what happens when you lose, Judge? Right. And that's what happened here. Isn't well, happened catas here. Catastrophic. Exactly. To what you, happens? To, you per to you personally and to a million uh, other people, as well as to the American, uh, American psyche. Well, and um, then for your adversary, right? If, correct. If, you, if, if the Russians made these attempts to negotiate, if they had a 15-point draft agreement with the Ukrainians at the end of March, which Reuters, the BBC, Financial Times, all reported on at the time, this is not something the Russians are making up. You know, what happens then when you're there rebuffed, when that's pulled out from underneath them, and the Americans and the British and NATO say, we will defeat you militarily? What does the American foreign policy establishment want and has, I don't want to get too political, but has President Biden painted himself into a corner because he doesn't really have an off-ramp here. The Ukrainians can't win. We've put in $60 billion already. He still has a blank check for another 53 or $54 uh, billion. He wants to run for re-election as a wartime president. How could this possibly end well for Victoria Nuland and company? Well, it won't end well for, for that cabal, right? For that group of, of neoconservatives who, again, are motivated by, in particular, say, with Newland's case, megalomania. They, the idea of anything other than victory from them is abhorrent. I mean, it goes to the very foundation of who they are. In the sense of whether or not you can get a White House that understands the reality of what's occurring here. And we have seen over the last couple of months, uh, the Post, the Times, the Journal, Politico, putting out reports that there is contention between the State Department and the White House, the National Security Council, over this idea of a negotiated settlement. The big thing is whether or not the Russians will go along with that at this point. I think there's a possibility the Russians would, because again, they've achieved most of their objectives, I feel, uh, as well as the uncertainty of what the future can hold. I think the Russians are in good spot now, but maybe two years from now, they won't be in that good spot. One of the things about foreign wars, wars like this, 
it always has a domestic political cost, and the Russians yeah. will not be amused, immune to that. So while the war may be popular in Russia now, two years from now, it may not be. And I think the Russians understand that. And so I think there still is a chance for negotiations, but it has to come with a degree of modesty and a degree of humility from the West. Also, too, with a very real understanding that you could have had a deal a year ago Matthew. that would have pulled the Russians out. Matt, there is no modesty or humility in the West, <laughs> at least not in the American foreign policy establishment. I don't want to know what's going through Prime Minister uh, Sunak in London or President Macron in Paris or Chancellor Scholz uh, in Berlin. They're probably looking to Joe Biden and he's looking to Tony Blinken and Victoria Nuland and they're, I'll use a Hebrew phrase, chutzpah on steroids. Right. right. Absolutely. And that's that's what you have here is you have this very small community that has defined American policy, foreign policy for generations, backed by a massive defense industry, backed by the military industrial complex, backed by the fossil fuel industry. Right. Uh, Biggest customer for Exxon is the Defense Department, you know, and backed by the banks that own all of that. I mean, so it's not just their desires. It's not just their worldview. It's not just their chutzpah, right? It's also, too, the fact that they are massively underwritten by the military industrial complex that allows them to continue whether or not what they're engaging in is pure fantasy. The the reality is that these people are fabulous. And I I think any type of getting through to them is going to be very difficult. And I think the only chance that may have in D.C. is the reality of the 2024 election and the Biden White House or the Biden campaign making the determination that getting out of this war is the best thing for us in 2024. Matthew Ho, it's a, a pleasure, my dear friend, but I do have to ask a favor of you. And I'm putting you on the spot because I'm asking you a favor in front of many, many people. Will you come back on the show? Oh, absolutely, Judge. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. Have a happy holiday and happy and safe holiday, everyone. Well, oh, th- thank you. Thank you. Happy uh, Independence Day. As many of my libertarian buddies believe, the last moral war we fought was the American Revolution. But we won't we won't go there, even though I know you're you're a historian. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll have you back next week. Thank you. Boy, if you like that, like and subscribe. You know our goal is 175,000 subscriptions by the 4th of July. We have 150 short of it. That's all we need uh, in the next five days. I think we're probably going to get it today. In 15 minutes at 2 o'clock Eastern, Larry Johnson and Ray McGovern together here on Judging Freedom. And, of course, as always, more as we get it. Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom. que afecta a muchos niños que no puedo resolver sola. Se llama estrés tóxico y esto aumenta el riesgo de problemas de salud. Pero hay pasos que los padres pueden tomar para superar el estrés tóxico. Aprende cómo en first5california.com.